Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's the thing that stopped me from, from getting into design for so long was that I worked under the assumption that it had to be perfect. And that, be, that came from my, back, my board game design background where i was like it has to be perfect it has to be balanced it has to we have to have the art done we have to have everything ready before we can even like play test it which was like a whore like play testing was so slow as a result because we were like making full prototypes rather than just writing things down on paper like writing down things on paper and playing that is just as fun so i learned the valuable lesson of just start putting it out there it doesn't have to be pretty to make it worth people's time My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us Again, today on Draw Your Dice, today we have a wonderful and, you know, in my personal terms, very successful guest. Not that any other guest will be any less or more successful, that's relative, but I think he has done an amazing job of creating, blasting out content in the last eight months or so. Absolutely phenomenal. Everyone Please welcome the creator of Slayer RPG and the newly modular system Light, Spencer Campbell. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm going to pause for applause. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. That was was really nice of you, by the way. That was all very nice. It's all true. There's no niceties about it. I'm not being kind in the slightest. You deserve every bit of that. Spencer, why don't you uh, talk about a little bit who you are as you present yourself uh, to the world for the people, because you'll do a far better job than I will trying to tell people who you are. Yeah, so I'm I'm Spencer Campbell. I use he, him pronouns. I kind of like kind of like you said, I've just been blasting out content this year as a game designer. My 
my day job by day, I'm a psychology professor and I've kind of dipped my toes between psychology and games in a few different ways. But by night I've, I've been designing games just a lot this, this year. I released my first game in as part of zine quest or like at the beginning of this year, which honestly feels like forever ago at this mm. point. And then after that, you know, quarantine kicked in and I was, I was just thinking to myself, this is, this is my chance. This is my, I suddenly have mm. the time. I suddenly have the ability to, to really take a shot at this. And since then I have been sort of, self-publishing slash doing some collaborative work on small one-page games all the way up to Slayers, which actually ended up as a, an act, like a proper book, which was surprising to me. An amazing, amazing thing. And yeah, I think COVID, you know, is a larger curse than it is a blessing for sure. But I think what it's really allowed, at least speaking to American culture, I don't know for any international listeners that may or may not listen to the show, but... For us, I think it was a wake-up call of kind of breaking up, you know, what we consider the 40-hour work week and really letting us slow down and really letting us think about, man, what what do I want to spend time creating, right? Like, I don't want to be sitting behind this desk all day long. I don't know, you know, I know we're in a modern age where not everyone's sitting behind a desk doing data entry, but I think it really allows allowed us to just sleep, like actually sleep for a second, wake up, feel refreshed, and go... You know, I really want to be, I want to make pottery. I I just, I'm really attracted to, to that. I want to try it. And I think that, especially for game design, this is the greatest time to sort of both tap into the art, but also like mix up the industry. Because for a long time, at least in my opinion, I think it's very stagnant in the mainstream that it's so traditionally based from the 70s and 80s and even like probably early 90s. But now we have the advent of digital options. I mean, even with COVID, lots of people are trying to create digital like digitally based RPGs that allow people to truly utilize virtual tabletops and things like Discord or Zoom or whatever have you. So yeah, um, I totally agree with you that it's been sort of a, a small, 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 small silver lining in the whole spectrum of this. Yeah, I I've, I saw a number of people who did exactly like you said. You know, my brother is a comedian in Chicago and there are, you know, Shows are not happening in Chicago right yeah, now. Yeah. So, you know, they try to do things with Zoom and, and things like that. But this has suddenly given him time to learn how to bake. He's never cooked before. And it's like he got super into baking. And my mom's a fantastic cook. And so they've bonded over this. So, you Aww. know, you find those small moments, those, those small things that you give you a chance to say, like, what matters to me? Or, you mm-hmm. know, what what can I bring into my life right now? Because so much has been taken away. I've got this huge void. What can I fill at least a little bit of that void with? And similarly, then, like you were saying, in the design space, we lost our ability to play games at the tabletop. Mm -hmm. We lost Mm -hmm. our ability to do that. And so that is fundamentally changing the way we think about designing games, publishing games, putting them Mm -hmm. out there and playing them. Like like you said, in terms of utilizing cool tools like virtual tabletops, Discord, stuff like that. So, yeah, there is there's that small silver lining, you know, with the looming curse of COVID above us. Absolutely. Um, so for, I know you mentioned a little bit that, that you teach psychology, but also I like to, before we get into the nitty of design, I like to remind people that game designers are more than 
the games they design. So kind of give us a small walkthrough of what led you to like, you know, what was your first game? What led you to start wanting to design games? And I know that this year gave you the time, but what was sort of that first spark of that back of the mind saying like, you know, I can make something like this or I can make something off this. So I had, I didn't start doing role-playing game design until about like two years ago, I would say. Before that, though, I had for years been working with my friend Mike Riemann, who was the illustrator and graphic designer for Dust. He and I, we lived in Chicago near each other. We would meet every Sunday, and we would design together. We But we would design board games and card games. We, huge, well before I got into role-playing games, I was really, and I still am, into board games. And so we... He had always wanted, he's a creative guy. He'd always wanted to make something of his own, but he didn't have like the, like he didn't have the, the thought process of how to like codify rule systems. Like he had big picture ideas, but how to like put them into a box was mm-hmm. the harder thing for him. And me, I couldn't think big picture like that. I, I that art, that artistic side of me wasn't, hadn't blossomed in any way. But I, <laughs> if you ask my parents, since I was like five years old, I've been making rules to games. So if my mom is telling the truth, like rule making has been a thing in my blood since I was a kid. And so Mike and I gathered and we bonded and became very good friends because of that. And so we had been trying and iterating on board games and card games for a long time. And that industry is just, it's a nightmare to try and get into. It's its very, there's a lot more steps. There's a lot more you have to get through because so much of it is physical components and balance actually kind of matters in a board mm-hmm. game when for me, like in role playing games, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. So we, you know, we had fun. We made tons of prototypes, but we never made anything. And for me, I, I wanted to finally like put something out to the world. And I had been tinkering with a few ideas of role-playing games because I had just started playing when I was in grad school. And I was the forever GM. Nobody else wanted to to GM. So I was the forever GM. So I was already doing design because I think a GM is a designer. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I was doing something already. And with and that's when I learned about Zine Quest. And I was like, this is it. This is going to be the thing that finally... Like if I have a deadline, I work better. Mike and I never had deadlines. It was just we're gonna we're gonna meet on Sunday and we're gonna have fun for four hours drinking coffee and making making games, but not actually publishing them. But now Zine Quest, I was like, oh, there are rules and there are like there's a deadline and, and an obligation. I can do this. I work well with this, and that's what got me to go. All right, let me. Let's let's and I sat down with Mike because again he's a graphic designer. He did the layout and graphic design for Score, which was my Zine Quest game, and kind of took off from there. So mm-hmm. started in board games, although apparently started when I was five. He asked my mom, <laughs> and then so it's all about structure. I think I think that's the the, the through line of this is that my life is a life that likes structure. Like a mm-hmm. five year old Spencer was like, no, we need rules, and yeah. I want to make the rules <laughs> too. Mike bringing me in to help him box up his ideas to me needing the structure of Zine Quest to actually produce any. That's amazing. That is the probably the epitome. I've known what I've wanted to be since I was young, sort of, kind of, uh, is that classic story. And that's really cool that you come from sort of a more, what I want to say is, mega heavily structured environment of board games 
uh, and that sort of helps you. I think that it is one of uh, your advantages is kind of learning about how that marketing, that publishing and all of that works and figuring out what all the cost effectiveness of the board game is and then transitioning that into an RPG, which is a little bit less taxing on physical product, but certainly shares the same scope, you know, of our traditional or modern slash traditional because it becomes traditional at some point, marketing, publishing, uh, schisms, and everything like that. So that's really cool that that you sort of built those skills along your career, especially in a structured state, which I think a lot of us, at least for me, when I first started approaching game design, it's very full art. Like, I'm the big mm-hmm. picture guy, but I can't, for the life of me, figure out what dice you should be rolling or what feels right. <laughs> and I'm like, but I just want them to feel like they're Ryu from Street Fighter. What happens next? So that's really cool. Cool. Well, let's get into talking about some design choices, philosophies, and principles. So for those who might have never heard of Spencer or have been listening to this show slash never listened to this show before, usually we will talk about like past design decisions that a creator has made for their game. However, Spencer is a special case. He has very recently on sort of, I call it semi-mainstream, like mainstream area where like rides just under D&D stuff, but rides Mm. just above like obscure indie. Spencer has a bunch of content out there already talking about his past design decisions with his games, especially on his own YouTube channel, which will be in the show notes below that you can kind of tack on to and listen to all those things. But I didn't want to sort of copy pasta that whole that's copy paste for anyone that doesn't understand the lingo the those sorts of comments again i feel like they're they're already out there you can certainly go find them and they are available for free for sure what i want to get into today with spencer and what we've kind of talked about behind the scenes a little bit is what he would do if he were to do the same thing again and what i mean by that is maybe like a second edition of something or what he may have learned from his Kickstarter or publishing journeys with sort of his bigger projects like Slayer and to some, I can't remember, is Corvid Court, was it kickstarted? No, that was a fever dream that came out in a two-day writing period. That Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> what In two days? I didn't even know that. What? Oh. He has so many games. Uh, his website will also be, both his itch and his website will be in the show notes as well if anyone wants to check out the the breadth of games he's created in 365 days. So, uh, Spencer, I guess, because we're going to talk about Light a little bit later, which is your newest project, and I know it's got a current amount of buzz to it, but you know, whoever listens to this podcast a year down the line, praise I'm still doing this a year from now, uh, and people like what I'm doing. But I want to sort of touch base on what would you do again? Like, what would you change about Slayer if you were going to, or even Corvid Court, sort of either one of those two games? I know those are some of your more popular ones, especially amongst the Brain Trust. And you also have the game Season, so feel free to touch on that as well. But what would you do in a second edition for, let's start with Slayers? I know watching your design commentary, you talked about both sort of the game loop structure you created with the adventures, like the three-act structure stuff. And I know you also talked about some classes that couldn't quite make it in but we're going to come back in like maybe later editions or expansions or whatever you were planning so yeah kind of kind of pick one and let's let's riff on that yeah this is I, I i'm excited to talk about this because this is something that has just been like burning it's a fire in my mind for a while of this idea of do i 
do I just kind of keep updating games or do I do I sit do I step away from them for a while do I brew and then eventually come up with like a bigger thing a, mm-hmm. like is it version 2.0 or is, is it second edition whatever you want to call it like what is my what is the process to follow with this mm-hmm. because so for Corvid Court for example when I first released it like I said it was one of those fever dream ideas that I had that I just I wrote it in two days and it was with a really amateur layout that had some stock art from a site that I have like a subscription to and you know it it looked like somebody who had never done this before but had interesting words inside and it it was very fun to write and then I got Maria to make it actually look good and she did the layout (laughs) and it, it actually looks fantastic but you know in my mind I was thinking is you know if if there's gonna be a new layout is this my opportunity to add more rules to the game? And I did. I, you know, it, there were updated rules. There were more skills and things like that that were added into the game. I, I didn't call it Corvid Court Second Edition because none of it felt substantial enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know, I don't think I'm done with Corvid Court. So in my in my head, I'm wondering when when do I go back to it, and and what is the scale at which I want to approach that game? Spencer, would you, for the people at home who may not have heard of Corvid Court, would you just give a very small introduction about what that uh, game is? Oh yeah, sure. So <laughs> Corvid Court is a game. It's a crow themed game. Bird, <laughs> mean birds doing bad <laughs> things is how I usually pitch it. Is bad birds doing mean things or something like that? It's a it's a game that uses the resistance system, which is. <laughs> mm-hmm made famous with Spire and and Heart, but it uses what I call Resistance Light because I I, sl- I sliced off a whole bunch of the, the things. I wanted mm-hmm. it to be very quick. And so it's it takes place in a weird city. You're members of the Corvid Court. You all, the classes have names that are different Corvids. So you've got a crow, a raven, uh, a jay, and a magpie. And you do bad things. Like, you're, <laughs> you are the, like... You're a crime syndicate, essentially. So you're hired to uh, steal, to hurt people, to bribe, to all, all sorts of horrible things. And the, the the running joke of the game is that I never overtly say whether or not you are actually birds. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's never clear in the rule book if you're actually birds or if you're just people who are, like, really into birds. And you yeah, got, like, yeah. feathers, like, woven into your coat or something. Totally unclear. Who knows? I love that. I love that vagueness. But yeah, so you're kind of touching on when, for this first kind of part of it, when does a rewrite of something, anything, warrant talking about essentially a new game, Mm. right? Kind of expanding, not just expanding upon maybe like a single rule, but really just like, okay, do I now make, like, when you talk about Corvid Court and how it's Resistance Light, do I now look at a second edition and make my own version of resistance, right? Or something like that. Like that's that's what I feel the sort of scope we're talking about here in terms of what constitutes a second edition or a redo. I think it's something at the base design level that says this is this is different. Right. Yeah. It it can't just be here's some more skills. Here's like a couple of more classes. Second Mm -hmm. edition. Right. Like that doesn't feel like a second edition. So exactly like you're saying, the thing that I've been grappling with, with making a a second edition with Corvid Court or what would ultimately be like a a fuller version, because right now I think it's a 24 page zine, if I remember Mm -hmm. correctly. So, you know, the standard zine size for RPGs 
But if I wanted to make it into a, a book or a bigger zine or something like that, I would need to justify that by having more there. And exactly like you're saying, thinking about this idea of resistance light, which I like, and how can I how can I add on to that while staying true to the idea of resistance light? Like I could just make Corvid Court with the actual resistance system. Mm-hmm. I could I could revert back to D10s. I could revert back to how Fallout is triggered. I could revert back to all of that stuff. And obviously I would have a full book. Because we yeah. know that that makes full books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's not what Corvid Court is in my head. And so what does the second edition look like is still one of those things that I'm I'm grappling with because I know I want to do more. I know there I, I I basically need to find ways to kind of codify a lot of the ideas that are in my head about what resistance light means and actually put them on the page. Cause mm-hmm. and it's something that I write in a lot of my books is Hey, you might notice, reader, that there's a lot of things missing here or a lot of like <laughs> gaps. That's because I want you to fill them. And I think maybe a second edition has me doing a little bit of that lifting rather than the the, the reader and me putting more, more substance of what the rules are supposed to be doing for the reader. I think that's that's a start of what a second edition is for Corvid Court, for example, but I don't I still don't think that's enough. And part of it is also what we were talking about earlier with how, how things are being produced right now, how they're being published, you know, it's, it's digital, right? People are putting things out digitally. I, I'm just a sucker for print just because I like to hold things. Absolutely. But, but, you know, by no means are people obligated to print the RPGs that they make. And so for me, I, I think I don't want to call anything a second edition or, or, or work on it as a second edition until I plan on printing it again. Because in mm-hmm. my mind, I can keep updating a PDF on mm-hmm. itch and keep just giving you more and more and more fixing something. Kind of like how people who put up beta files, beta mm-hmm. tests, play mm-hmm. tests of their games. I kind of see myself doing that with games until eventually I go, now I've added enough that I can justify printing it again. And now we're starting to enter second edition territory. Mm-hmm. Like, with Slayers, it's hard to think about uh, a second edition. Or, it's not hard. It's just, it's interesting because the, there are actually, that one I can actually think of things that I want to add. Things that I think would actually change the way that the game would play while still staying true to the core design. I I don't think I want to abandon the rule of four and the asymmetry. Those things are still kind of fundamental to Slayers. But there are things that I think could be changed or added that would make the game actually look like like a game that I, I would more traditionally play because right now Slayers isn't a game that I would traditionally play. And I think that's an interesting idea. (laughs) Yeah. What, you know, lightning round sort of question here, what would be, if you've had a thought, one of those changes that you might make that might kind of, uh, bolster game, like name, name what that mechanic is and then what you would switch it to. So one thing that I noticed when I was looking at all the classes that I made, and then I looked at the classes that people made in the Slayers Jam, mm-hmm. there were some really creative folks who made advances for the classes that were not combat-oriented. <laughs> and I realized, wait a minute, all of my character progression is purely based off of getting better at killing monsters. Which makes sense, it's mm-hmm. a monster-hunting game, but like one would have to assume that there must be interesting things that happens to the tactician as they become a better tactician that isn't solely 
I'm better at killing monsters, but they must have like an actual narrative impact. And so mm-hmm. finding a way for character progression to more substantially affect the non-monster hunting component of the game, I think is important. And that's inherently linked then to the other big thing that I want to change, which is the cycle of play of Slayers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which right now, the way that I just happened to write it when I was first putting together an adventure was as a three act structure, you know, act one, here's the monster you all are hunting, you know, introduce the monster, introduce the threat, act, you know, do some investigation, act two, do some investigation, maybe have a fight just to, to test you out. And then act three, do the big fight. Mm-hmm. And that made sense to me as I was writing an adventure because I never had written adventures like actual structured adventures before. And so that structure has just unfortunately stuck as like the default mode of playing Slayers. When I don't think if I were to GM it today, I would structure it in a three act way at all. I would mm-hmm. leave it much more open, much more. I don't want to say sandboxy, but I, I would I wouldn't put it on those rails to the same degree. Mm-hmm. And so if you've got character advances or character skills or things like that that are much more interesting and interact with the non-monster fighting stuff, then you are supporting that that change of the, the cycle of play. If I want the mm-hmm. cycle of play to be less about just murdering monsters, I also need to give the player something that lets them interact with that in an interesting way. Mm. There were, when I first started touching on what you're just sort of speaking to about the feel of the game and that that act structure towards adventures and changing that i when i first picked up slayer before i opened the cover of the pdf because i do not have a physical print unfortunately yeah oh we can fix that (laughs) please don't make me cry but i envisioned the game out of the gate like from the description of it as like monster hunter world like that was the first thing my mind immediately connected it to i know that some of the cover art is a little bit more at least to me it feels a little bit more like city what do i want to say it feels a little bit more D D when i mm-hmm. when i think about the cover mm-hmm. in of itself like you are an adventurer and these are the monsters you go hunt but my first inclination was like man i am excited to like just go out in the wild gather th- some resources, make some stuff and hunt down some really cool, like, cause I've always tried in, at least when I first started playing D and D back in the day, I always tried to shoehorn like a monster hunter monster mm. in there. Like one of the big bads, like the Lagaya Cruz, so the, you know, the flagship or Thalos, Right. And it never felt quite as satisfying because it was tactical based. And I think for, to make that effective, like all the dodge rolling and all the pressure, I think that's to be very theater of the mind or cinematic based mechanics. But anyways, the point being is that I, I agree in the sense that like, I think that having advances that talk about, cause it's a role playing game. And at what point do you say, what is and is not a role-playing game, right? And is something so combat-focused that it's not role-playing? Because D&D is very much heavily mm-hmm. combat-focused. But we have seen, with many actual plays out there, that role-playing does occur. And that's usually at the lifting power of the players at the table, right? It's not at the lifting power of the game in of itself. Doesn't, doesn't give you many options to uh, role-play in terms of that. But I... Yeah, I, I definitely think that that for me, my personal opinion, I think Slayers would be amazing as that sort of sand, semi-sandboxy 
explore the environment, learn about the world. Sort of like a almost a Dark Souls lore structure, right? Like you find out lore through items or bone or or whatever have you, loose NPCs. Yeah, like that's that. And the thing is, as you're saying all this stuff, that's the game that's always been in my head. But when I wrote Slayers, I'll admit I wrote it about two years ago. And or that's when it started kind of really getting hitting the page. And it came from me being at the height of doing board game design, which Mm -hmm. was this very structured thing. And so Mm -hmm. for me, I was thinking I, I was playing asymmetrical board games and I I was thinking of structured sort of play, and I, and so that's why the the adventure has this structured three structure act, and why why the game does one thing really well, which is fighting monsters, but then ultimately is not supporting the players in doing the thing that I actually want mm-hmm. to support, which yeah, is yeah, all yeah. the the other stuff. And so, I think a, a second edition isn't going to be one that changes fundamentally or adds much to the combat side. Cause I mm-hmm. think I'm pretty happy with that. Mm-hmm. What it ultimately is, is giving players the support so that they're not doing the lifting. Like you were saying that, that I'm not putting the onus on the players to be the ones to figure out how to make role playing interesting in slayers. Mm-hmm. But instead mm-hmm. this, the, the game has something in there that is going to help you and make you want to explore to make you want to go talk to that npc or make you go want to go explore that ruin besides it's your job go do it yeah Uh, yeah exactly this is what the game is about go (laughs) right yeah as as i kind of on for anyone who doesn't know or you know maybe i someone listens to this a year down the line i've ever released a game of similar make but as i'm you know fucking around with this and cursing is fine if you feel like Oh, good. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. No, we're cool. (laughs) Children, beware. There is cursing. But, you know, I have the mouth of a sailor. So figure that one out. But as I'm as I'm fucking around with this, I'm trying to make Devil May Cry into a game. Right. And it's very like action move. It's all about the buttons you press. Mm -hmm. And there is a story behind it. But that's structured for Devil May Cry. So I my big hurdle right now is like, how do I make Devil May Cry the game have role play? in it how do i how do i inject some of that role play goodness and i think i'm coming to some of the same like hurdles that you yourself came with with slayers is that you know i made i made a great system i have a great like combo chain system Mm -hmm. i'm i'm liking but now i'm like okay but why where is the why here (laughs) right i've been seeing the stuff that you've been putting in the the brain trust and yeah absolutely it's such a cool combat system and then you're gonna you're going to have absolutely the same experience as me, where you're yeah. going to release, release this thing, and you're going to be like, wow, this combat system rocks. Good luck with the rest of it. That's <laughs> kind of what my book says. That's what my, like, my GM section is mostly like, balance doesn't matter, go figure it out, uh, have fun, yeah. fu- you know, fight some monsters. And, you know, at the time, I was happy with that. I think after a few months out, I, w- I know that I, I can do more with that side of things. Uh, mm-hmm. And I... You know, I haven't been brewing on it. And it's a part of it is going back to that idea of updating versus second edition. Like I learned through the Slayers Jam that people can put together content for Slayers very quickly and very easily. And that as a result, the game can change very quickly based off of whatever jam stuff you want to throw into your game people were making things that fundamentally changed the setting people were releasing things that had advances that affected things that weren't combat Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm watching all of these things and I'm going, okay, so at what point do we just sort of allow that stuff to be the dictator of what the future of Slayers is? Is is you know, third party content ultimately shifts what Slayers is about, or is it is is it my responsibility to eventually be like, I see what you all want. I will try my best mm-hmm. to replicate that in a second edition. You know, you know, like that's what D and D is dealing with right now. They've they've got all their that nonsense with with races, right, and mm-hmm. like the species, and they're like, well, just homebrew it. And like people have been fixing D and D for years now. And mm-hmm. when is D and D going to be? You know, when are they eventually going to? actually fix their problem mm-hmm. and i think many of us expect them to fix the problem i'm not saying my my thing is the same scale but i'm just wondering like is, at one point is the expectation for me to release slayers second edition that supports these things if i'm seeing people wanting them or do i is it is it one thing where i encourage then those third party people to be like the game the city is yours to make what make of it what you will and mm-hmm. i don't it's it's a weird line it's a weird mm-hmm. line to think about which like or you know to walk on yeah it's always it's always trying to i mean every this is with everything not just game design everyone listening but you have to decide first what your personal taste is in mm-hmm. your game and no one's taste is going to be the same as the next person sitting next to you uh taste is formed from the decisions of the things we love and the things we hate and how we voice those opinions you know in the in the D example i mean this is my crazy tinfoil hat moment <laughs> here but you know part it's this is part of the reason like that i hate the dm's guild because mm-hmm. Wizards of the Coast is taking 30% or whatever from you for all of your creativity to create races that are not bound by old lore, to create classes that people have been asking for for years, to create setting information. And they just get to reap. You're like semi-contracted designers with none of the intellectual property to yourself, right? And... For me, that stuff is hyper dirty. Like, I do not like that. And they certainly have the means to change all, you know, like you were talking about the the race stuff. They have all the means right now. They could literally reprint a 5.5 player's handbook. I have no doubt in my mind that just erases all that. But they have to keep the last 40 years worth of customer base somewhat happy. Why? I don't know. Because Hasbro rules them? I don't know about that either. But yeah, uh, that all trickles down to when we make changes as designers, we have to think about the weight of what we are expecting from our game and then what our fans are expecting from our game. Because to some effect, we are we are not creating for ourselves. We are not going to purchase our own game and then thus fuel our electric bills and food, right? At some point, we have to decide, like, this is the art I want to make and this is the input I'm willing to take from my patrons. And, you know, for your first few games, people listening out there, please don't bend <laughs> to the will of the populace. Figure out what you like first. Your, your taste has to come before theirs, no doubt. Make the game you want to make. And then figure it out from there. That's what second editions are for. Exactly. Uh, But after that, you know, you have to start thinking about who are you appealing to? You know, not everyone's going to like your game. You can't, you can't catch all. You can't create the biggest net in the world and get every single dollar. So get 
100 people who are willing to pay $50 for your game or 150 in D&D's case or more. So <laughs> I remember when I when I released Corvid Court, I was so excited and people people were digging it and I eventually got my first four star rating on itch which anybody who's familiar with itch knows that that's a bullet to the head of that game yeah. like that just that fucks you on analytics so badly and it really is you either get a five star or you're doomed and <laughs> i remember looking at the review and because they actually wrote something which was helpful rather than just like four star four stars and then they just peace out mm-hmm. and they basically said like this is a cool rules light thing it's too rules light for me and mm-hmm. I remember looking at that and going, oh, shit, do I need to make, do I need to add a bunch of stuff? Like, I, like, started panic designing. And I didn't mm-hmm. ultimately change anything, but I did start panicking right away and thinking, like, if this person thinks it's two rules light, then there must be other people who think that. Sure. And I need to fix this immediately, which was ignoring what I wanted Corvid Court to be, which was this really fast, light thing. So I, I totally get where you're coming from, this idea of, like, you need to know what your what your scope is and what you want out of the game and to not especially in your early designs because mm-hmm. corporate court was my i think it was my second thing that i put out to not immediately change everything when you get one person saying hey i don't like this part of your game yeah uh, don't don't panic design <laughs> It's. I think comments like that always trigger that sort of imposter syndrome from people. Like you think you put out such a beautiful product or wonderful product, you feel very proud of what you did, and then it just takes one person to be like, "Man, it's all right," and you're like, "Well, fuck me, I'm not right. God anymore. <laughs> Why am I even bothering yeah, doing this?" Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that can be that can be really tough, especially when you're starting out. I I certainly know. I do I like criticism. I feel like I can I can deal with criticism, but when it comes from like an anonymous body, for some reason that just holds so much more weight because they don't know who I am. They don't know what I like, and thus they're they're taking whatever this product is at its absolute face value. That's why those things, at least for me, feel so much more heavy. And this, you know, this is speaking about like food I've made in the past, like when customers would send it back and I'm like, "I thought the sauce is really good." <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, that's also taste. So before we get into light, the next thing I always sort of like touch on is future thoughts. And this is mainly to noticing any trends that you feel like are happening in the industry at the at the recording of this. So in your sphere or in your own personal thoughts, what are some trends that you may be seeing like on Twitter and discords on like your itch comments that people are like asking for something that always keeps flipping your radar, like, you know, accessibility, diversity, or, you know, even like mechanical stuff. Like I'm tired of seeing the D20 and things or even your own personal sort of wants for industry change again, like accessibility, diversity, or even like, let's, let's let the, let's let the D20 die. Right. Right. Definitely, you know, we're we're consistently seeing things about accessibility. There was a really good conversation. Time doesn't mean anything anymore. I, I want to say it was a few <laughs> days ago, but it could yeah. have been like months ago at this point. In in the Brain Trust about making products that were accessible in terms of like screen readers and things like that. And, you know, not, not mm. participating, but just reading the conversation and, and just absorbing all this stuff. And, and like, un- what I'm learning 
which I think is something that I'm just perpetually learning in my life, is that I have lived in such a bubble. Such mm-hmm. a bubble, Jeremy. <laughs> I feel like, you. I super feel you. And and so for me, I'm probably seeing things and thinking, this is an interesting trend when it's probably something that's been going on forever and I just never had to think about it or see it. So like the accessibility thing, for example, I've never had to personally myself have to deal with screen readers. I do have to do stuff like with my slides and stuff like that with my students. I have to put together things that allow my students to get the material from me in an accessible way. But I never even would have like made that translation to design like Mm -hmm. for, for my games. And so that conversation in the brain trust was really, really interesting. There's a, it's going on right now. There's an Asian cyberpunk jam Mm -hmm. going on, on itch, which is like a fantastic counterpoint to, you know, uh, CD Projekt Red's cyberpunk game mm-hmm. that just came out that is highly problematic. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It's problematic for a number of things, but one of the big problematic re- things about cyberpunk is it kind of stands on like the pillar of Asianism, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so seeing cool jams like that, I think, is a really great trend. But again, maybe it's not a trend. Maybe it's been going on forever and I'm only just seeing it. But I think that sort of stuff in terms of like not writing not writing for somebody else or like to to try and represent somebody else and this is something we see in board games all the time the the white guy that makes the the, the japanese board game about samurai and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and shit like that right legend like, five rings people yeah yeah exactly right like the asians represent podcast is fantastic because they go into all of that stuff and like their Chef's read-throughs yep. oh it's so good it's yeah. so good and like my skin recoils as I as they read some of the, like the older stuff, but even like the newer stuff, you see it. And like I saw on Twitter just yesterday, making the rounds, another board game that hit Kickstarter that is uh, white guys making a katana game. You know, mm-hmm. like, and I think it's called Katana, <laughs> and it's it's got a very Asian font, and so it's cool seeing like the Asians represent podcast win the any for best podcast. For mm-hmm. example, Like mm-hmm. there's clearly something happening where people are like, this is ridiculous. This is yeah. honestly ridiculous that we're seeing this. And so I'm, I'm glad it sucks that despite all of that, wizards of the coast is still doing like has, has, is not budging on any of that stuff. So like the trends mm-hmm. exist at the indie level, right? They exist yeah. at this smaller level, but I don't see grand sweeping trends at a higher level in any way and Mm -hmm. you know i don't know if we should ever even expect that at this point out of wizards um no not at all i mean they're gonna keep doing the model that that they want to do that makes them whatever amount of money they like to make i don't know what that number looks like but the the biggest number you can imagine yeah (laughs) quinn quinn gillian add another zero as a result we're getting cool game jams I think that's one thing mm-hmm. that I'm seeing a lot is is game jams that are getting more and more sp- like specialized because they used to you know itch hosts game jams for because itch was not made for us it was not made for the tabletop role playing yeah. community but we have sort of like glommed onto it yeah. like, please <laughs> this is ours place. now yeah but you know ga- the concept of game jams has been going on for such a long time and they were usually like broader concept like make an action game. You know, make a game about space. And you're like, okay, that's cool. But like, it's a huge thing. And now we're getting these really hyper specific jams, which I think is 
rather than like excluding people where they're like, oh, that's too specific for me. I think it's it's bringing out people yes. to the space because they're going, mm-hmm. wait, I can make a game about that because that's something that I really like or I have a thought about. And I didn't know that I could make a game about that. And so I think the these like hyper specific game jams are really cool in terms of encouraging either new designers or designers to just think about things in a way that they never thought about before. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, speaking to the points of like, not when we talk about accessibility in lots of different areas, you know, initially this opened with e-readers, but also transitioned into racism, transitioned into diversity, transitioned into approachability by different venues and perspectives. And I agree with you. I love all these niche jams that are coming out that What I think for me is that selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I think pe- people of minority-based demographics are 
hesitant to join because they don't know what circles are going to truly accept them. At least, you know, when I think about for a long time when the Black Lives Matter movement kind of came into a head, for me, I'm I am half black. I like to call myself black because that is the culture I recognize as myself as an American. But ultimately, I'm an American, black American. And for a long time, I kind of I have a I'm very light skinned. If anyone sees a profile picture of me somewhere, I'm sure you'll not assume I am a black person by first glance. But I would use that to my advantage because my thought is that my likes are go- my likes and my perspectives and my experiences are going to be tinted by someone's perception of what a black person is the second they learn that that's the thing. And for game design and for people getting into game design, I guess what I'm trying to say here is there are circles and there are communities of really amazing people, really kind people and really helpful people that will look beyond the color of your skin and embolden you to make content about anything. And what I really realize, at least for American culture speaking specifically, is that we've been sort of whitewashed for a really long time. And you know the phrase, there's no such thing as an original idea. I don't think that's true in America because we have no original ideas from the lenses we've been using for forever, right? But then we get you know, movies like Get Out, we get stuff like The Handmaid's Tale, perspectives from people that have not been the industry norm that are really eye-opening and are really beautiful both artistically but also socially and community-based as well. So, yeah, I think I think um, noticing that sort of trend and that want for diversity and accessibility is really important and you know what i hope with this design trend segment is that any game designer listening or any wannabe game designer listening or any veteran who feels like they've sort of plateaued and don't know why their games aren't selling anymore one of these trends might be you're in or the reason so consider that this is where the more you know uh rainbow right the star goes (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i mean that's it's so true like what you're saying like this this call for for people to understand that they this space is for them as well mm-hmm. you know they it's it sucks because i have never had to have anybody tell me that right yeah. nobody has ever had to tell me spencer you you are allowed to design games the assumption was yeah i can design games mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. right and for the listeners if you haven't seen me in real life i'm a white ass guy i'm yeah, a super yeah. white ass guy <laughs> and so like Exactly like you're saying, like the going into a space that is predominantly made up of people that look like me and then wanting to bring in a perspective that is not my perspective. I like, of course, that would just suck, right? Like, why would you ever want to get into that? This is something to speak to a totally different field in academia. That's so I'm a professor. My partner teaches at high school, both at the high school level and in higher ed. There is an ongoing discussion about policy on how to bring in more diverse faculty. Because, you know, the assumption is always let's find diverse students, but diverse faculty. Like, why aren't we getting, why do all the faculty look like me? And, like, that's an ongoing conversation about, well, why wouldn't somebody who looks like, why would somebody who doesn't look like you, Spencer, not want to be in academia right now? And that's, you know, that's, it's bringing out, 
really important conversations in in that space. And I think we're having some of those conversations in the design space as mm-hmm. well. And I Absolutely. think that's I think that's super cool. Yeah, me too, for sure. So, Spencer, I know that we're getting into the game you're sort of really heart-throbbing over right now. (laughs) And, you know, I think we'll touch on both, you know, creating this game. And I know you've done a design commentary on that currently. So, again, check out Spencer's YouTube. Has a great, like, 50-minute deep dive into all the modules he's made for this so far. But you have been crafting this, as you call it, love letter to the Destiny series, sort of both mechanically and in, in the lore and the setting that's that's involved there. But I also, you know, we've had, you've been having a really big conversation about kind of changing the scope of what it means to sell a game with this season's pass idea. So first, why don't we touch on, you know, why light and what, what do you see for the future of light? Like how big, what's the scope of that? project because again there is a deep dive on youtube that you can right. look at that i don't want to re rehash in here <laughs> but yeah what's sort of like your intended scope over the course of the year with that and the seasons pass so yeah, that's a really good question because the scope of the game has changed i think it changes every day yeah. or every yeah. other day as i'm thinking about it because when i i've been talking about wanting to make a destiny heartbreaker for a long time And I honestly had been working for a long time making it as a resistance game because that's just what I do. Mm -hmm. I think I just I make resistance games because I like it. Like that's what Corvid Court and Seasons were. And I was like, what if I did Destiny, but with resistance? And I was working on that for a while. And that's and I and then the and then light came like a like a fever dream. The rules light version hit the page. The modular idea hit the page. And I was like, I like this way better. Let's let's do this one instead. (laughs) And so for me. Looking at games like 2400, which is obviously I, I borrow heavily in terms of the format that Light is is put together using like Beeple's art, which I think mm-hmm. is, I wonder if Beeple is a, like aware at this point about how how many RPG designers are using that art because you know the 20 24XX jam that took took place like everybody's using that art <laughs> and I'm using it now and I, I know other people have been using it for things that aren't those two games so that's just a random tangent but when i first put it out i i I wanted to just sit on it for a while because i I honestly just wanted to sit on designing for the rest of the year having having just put the dust kickstarter out and and wrapped that up in terms of running the campaign i was like all right i've done enough and then again that fever dream and so i put out all those modules and now i'm finally putting the game to bed but i have this season pass idea which i'm like super excited and terrified of i don't as far as i know i i don't i'm not aware of anybody that has done something exactly like what i have in mind should i explain i don't think i explained it in the video my deep dive do i no i I don't think i don't think you touched based on the seasons past yeah absolutely talk about what what that idea is and how it's how you think it's gonna sort of shake things up so borrowing from destiny's own model and the model of other video games you know the season pass is something that i have in mind where over the course of time some x amount of time which i'm going to just say is four months you will get four new 
modules or releases for light things to expand on or change the rules of the game so you know approximately one a month but i don't i'm taking adam vass's <laughs> advice and saying don't say one a month just in case you don't stay yeah. exactly true to that <laughs> so you're gonna get four things and, and it's sort of that drip feed right you you get you get content drip fed to you rather than as like here's a new book or mm-hmm. here's a whole new full expansion mm-hmm. and my idea is that you would pay for it like you would pay for a season pass, meaning you pay for it all at once, and you just know that over the course of that four months, you're going to get content rather than all, like buying it a la carte in like individual pieces, which I think I'm ultimately going to make available in case you don't want to do this whole right. season pass yep. thing. Like, I don't want to content block people and say, like, you buy the pass or you get nothing. That doesn't sound cool. Not fun at all. And right. not fun for your wallet either. You know what no. I mean? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to turn those people away. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah. you know, my my intent is that if it's four months, what I can do is I can do three of those in a year, and my I'm going to do the trial run. I'm going to start in January, and it's going to be the first season, and I've got it kind of lined up in terms of some of the modules that I want to do, and I want to see how it works. I want to see if people understand it, if people buy into it, if they like it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a... A season pass isn't a groundbreaking idea. These these people are have likely played Destiny. That's why yeah, they yeah. like life. Super Smash. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But but translating that to a a TTRPG mm-hmm. subscription essentially, I think is different. And my big thing that I've been grappling with is this versus Patreon because Patreon's right. the known thing. People mm-hmm. get that. They know it's a monthly thing or a you know every creation thing. It's got the communication tools. It's got polls. It's got mm-hmm. all that stuff. Itch doesn't have that stuff. Right. But I think the season pass is a really cool idea. <laughs> I think and so too. I, I think so as well. So because because I have the luxury of, of experimenting with my stuff without it's this isn't my day job, right? So I, mm-hmm. I you know, I'm I can play around with ideas. I want to try this season pass thing and and see how it works. Now my grand scheme. Jeremy, mm. my grand scheme. Throw it at me. Show is, me the whiteboard, dude. <laughs> is every, you know, at the end of every season, I put together a a, a print of the the stuff of yeah. the, the modules that came out that that season. And maybe there's a way that I can figure out how to sell the season pass. Like, you know how you can do like physical rewards or different rewards on itch mm. to to, you know, if you're a season pass holder and you throw five bucks you're going to get the print at the end of the season too mm-hmm. and then ultimately combine it all into light year one like the the actual book at the end of the year that's got all three seasons it's got the core rules and the core modules as mm-hmm. like a thing that's like here's one year of light and i and the whole point is to reward the season pass holders to, yeah. to find ways like to not be like you paid me once now pay me again and pay me yeah, again. Yeah, 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 yeah. like to find. And again, I think that's so much easier done with Patreon than it is mm-hmm. with itch, but mm-hmm. I want to see if I can figure this out. Cause if I can, that's going to allow other people to play around with this idea. And so that they don't have to go start their own Patreon. Like, cause that, that might seem intimidating or that might seem like a lot of work. If you want to do like the small, like iterative process, mm-hmm. like, do you really need to make a Patreon to do that? Or can we keep it all on itch as a platform and we just need to like iron out the details? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, first of all, 
I fucking love that idea. <laughs> I will I will talk like consumer structures all day with a person. I swear <laughs> to God. But what I really you know, I think what's what as you said, it's not a terribly groundbreaking idea, right? Because the sum capacity stuff like Kickstarter is like this a little bit, right? Like mm. you're playing you're paying early access for stuff. It's just with Kickstarter, it's like you don't know if you're going to get it this year or two years from this, right? This is a little bit more of like, I promise you, you will see this ish in four months. And that's why it's priced like this, right? And I think that creating some sort of like uh, longevity product for subscription holders is amazing because what is the ultimate goal of any person that makes a business, right? You want to find your, you know, 100, 1,000 true fans, whatever that, that, term is or quote or whatever it is who are going to come back to you year after year and are willing to spend like a hundred bucks a month or something like that on your content i mean that's the dream and i think stuff like that that creates like a little drip feed from one person to the other that's also manageable for people who maybe see games as a pretty frivolous thing and don't want to spend that much money on it, right? So having some yeah. sort of early access pricing that allows for me, like, yeah, I can spend 10 bucks here on January to get, like, a bunch of stuff by April, right? No, I th- I think it's amazing. And also having options for people who are like, yeah, I can, I didn't get on the season pass, but I can definitely splurge in April on, like, something that's two or three dollars more, whatever your price structure looks like. Those are these are just random numbers. I really love the idea of that end of the year book. I think that's really cool. And it also I mean this depends on the person designing, but it also keeps you in deadline mode pretty much mm-hmm. the whole year, right? You're like, okay, I'm gonna have to put out twelve pieces of content that is at some at, in some structure doable for me and at the end of the year everyone gets this cool $15 book that other people can pick up for a little bit more or whatever and other people just get it in the mails like a surprise which is also always nice having having something that you subscribe to that like here's your little here's your little present for being really cool and really supporting this idea i think the season pass is is chef's kiss no doubt I, I, I'm glad that you think that. I, I think it's going to be cool. And I, I, that you vocalizing it, that idea of that, like, kind of constant deadline is, mm-hmm. I think that's why I'm, I'm, I'm into this idea. I, I think it's also why I'm in, like, I'm interested in the concept of a Patreon because, like, Adam Vass and Chris Bazette, they can put out things, like, every month or every other mm-hmm. month because they are machines like that. Yeah, right? yeah, they're, yeah. they're very, they're very good at that sort of thing, which is maybe, you know, I actually had a long conversation with my partner about this the other day where she was like, is that what you want? Is that what you want to be? Do you want to be a machine like that who puts it out? And I'm not trying to disparage uh, that, yeah, that yeah. sort of rate. They're of- not unfeeling monsters. No, who yeah, exactly. Games. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening, you, we don't think that of you. But she 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 pushed on me and was like, is that what you want to do? to do with this because you are having fun with this right mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. will that diminish your fun mm-hmm. and i think by making it like a patreon and as like it's this big i think a patreon is just a much bigger to do than yes. this season pass on itch as this sort of like it's just light it's just a season pass i think that is a much it's more on the scale of what works for me personally and kind of what i want to get out of the experience so but it's still exactly like you said gives me that deadline which mm-hmm. As we said, I think all the way at the beginning of this, I'm all about having that little bit of structure in my life. I need it. (laughs) It helps me so much. 
Yeah, I, you know, I'm currently with this podcast struggling with like, do I start a Patreon? Is that what is like Mm. my sort of crowdfunding method for sure? And there's, you know, I've looked at stuff like Kofi and Gumroad. Oh, Gumroad might be something interesting to Mm. touch base with. I think it's like a product sales or commission sales sort of thing. You can like upload products, but that's not what this podcast is about. Well, technically it sort of is, but yeah, I, I think Patreon is a huge project for sure. And it, you know, in some form, it is not the best communications tool from what Mm. I'm understanding from different people's opinions on like YouTube or whatever. It doesn't have like a good archival system. So people Mm. can't really pull up like older posts or old products or whatever without you like fandangling a database thing that they have a link to. So it's really, it has a lot of work in outside of itself. I think figuring out how to do it in itch is cool because what you because obviously Patreon's not changing unless it's for itself. Like it's going to change what it needs to change. But for itch, especially over the course of its existence, I think it's changed a lot based on what the demographic attached to it is. Like before it was very video game focused, right? Or even board game focused to some extent. And then role-playing games are really starting to like tack onto there. Maybe doing the season pass thing alters how transactional or payment structures work in it. Like maybe someone takes notice and it's like, okay, we want to be able to facilitate this because it also means more money for us in the end right so right can can itch find a way to set up a recurring sort of thing exactly like every, every four months you you come to this this user and say hey it's the next payment for this person which just happens to be the next season for light but like it's you know setting up a, re- a recurring thing like that would help and there's you know there are there are tools in play with itch and I've been talking with people like Adam Vass about how to make this work because if I was to release all of these modules as individual products then obviously my main screen is just going to be filled up with all these little light things and I don't want to do that and so like using the collections for example as mm-hmm. a way of saying like here's what here's light season 1 here's light season 2 and so there are there are ways of playing around with it that I, the sort of what I've devoted this month to is I've mm-hmm. got like a bunch of draft projects on on itch right now that nobody else can see that i'm just like tinkering with and seeing like all right how how does this look i've had you know i i did a first write-up of of season one and i showed it to adam and he was like it's good but it sounds like you're talking to designers and i think that's very much the way that i tend to talk and which makes sense because largely the people i talk to on twitter and 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 things like this are also designers but I need to be able to sell it to people who aren't designers. I need yeah. to be able to sell it to people who are just super into Destiny and want to play a Destiny mm-hmm. RPG. And so I'm I'm learning a lot by talking to people who are much more experienced and better at this sort of like promoting your stuff and then like learning how to how to present it in a way that is going to be appealing. And that's that's the thing that I'm grappling with right now with itch is like how do I make something like a season pass visible and clear like right away? This is a pre-order for something you're getting over four months. You know, that's the, that's the grapple right now. Mm. I mean, what do you think this podcast is about? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Learning from others, right? (laughs) Uh, This is definitely the business of game design, right? So, you know, for those, those listening at home, it's important to think about like, yeah, game design is at some extent an art and also a form of entertainment. But if you want to make this a thing that you do, 
there's branding, marketing, transactional processes that you're gonna have to figure out. So, you know, I think in Adam Bell's video, one of his tips that we talked about were a community-based and how you, you know, you don't have to put yourself in the pool with everyone else, but put your legs in the water and listen to what people are saying and maybe reach out to some people that you think share similar ideas with yourself and get a get an idea for, you know, do, is this a good idea? Do you think, you know, I want some opinions of people who are a little bit more well-versed than I am. Don't be, don't be afraid to ask people because people can surprise you. They can be giving for sure. And like you're saying, a lot of people in the brain trust, you know, shout out to the brain trust folk, get your big brain on. They've been, they've been instrumental in a rapid evolution of my personal game design ability. And also looking into the perspective and scope of people who have done a lot more for a far longer time than myself or to anyone that I may have found on Twitter by accident. So (laughs) Oh yeah, huge shout out to the brain trust. Like I, I literally don't think Slayers would have been successful or as successful as it was if it wasn't for Adam reaching out to me and saying, "Hey, the Slayers thing that you're talking about seems interesting. Do you want to join this Discord?" And like that fundamentally changed my life as a designer. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you know, huge shout outs, huge, great. This is the last transitionary piece of exciting. Um. So this last one is sort of like a a lightning round, like the trends thing. This is a this is a tip that you yourself think would be beneficial to game designers out there. And I have a little table that I'm going to roll on here. Oh, okay. It's always random. I don't pre-plan it. So your uh, prompt is publishing. Hmm. What is a tip that you would have for a new game designer, or even maybe someone who's like got a game out in PDF but doesn't quite know how to get it to, like, book or market it? What would be, like, a publishing tip in your experience that you could provide to someone? What I learned with the first wave of success with Corvid Court is that your book doesn't have to be pretty to to get people's eyes on it. Corvid Court had a somewhat attractive cover which i think was the thing that got people to actually click on it but the rest of the book itself was not exciting to look at it wasn't pretty but it genuinely had like a lot of people like it has easily the most number of downloads of any of my games on itch like it is and a large number of those downloads came from the period of time when it did not have maria's very good layout but when it had my very bad layout Mm -hmm. and so i think many people work under the assumption that to publish something it needs to have like great mm. graphic design and like that like the pages of the book need to have some sort of background or they need you need to have some sort of page elements and mm. obviously you want to like that's a cool thing to get to but that shouldn't be the thing that's stopping you from putting that mm-hmm. that pdf up on on itch right now because at the very least what you can do with itch is you can put things up as in development Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be listed as like the done thing. So go ahead and put it up there and just say, yeah, here's this thing. The words are cool. Ignore the fact that it's <laughs> black text on white. Background. That's a Google Doc. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just read the words. And then, you know, if the words seem cool and enough people are talking about it, then you can worry about the rest of that stuff. But I think that's the thing that stopped me from from getting into design for so long was that I worked under the assumption that it had to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And that be, that came from my back, my board game design background, where I was like, it has to be perfect. It has to be balanced. It has to 
We have to have the art done. We have to have everything ready before we can even like play test it. Which was like a hor like playtesting was so slow as a result because we were like making full prototypes rather than just writing things down on paper. Mm-hmm. Like writing down things on paper and playing that is just as fun. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. so I learned the valuable lesson of just start putting it out there. It doesn't have to be pretty to make it worth people's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really important thing for a new designer. Yeah, I am I am definitely in that that row of designs like, ah, I don't have the graphic design chops. I'm really, I really don't want to put it out there, but it's true. It's like people can get really attracted to the idea of something for sure. And maybe you're the person that innovates on the resistance system and, or maybe you're the person that innovates on the forge in the dark system. And you just, I mean, all forge in the dark is, is, is D six bulls of D six shadow run mm-hmm. did it before them. And someone did it before shadow run. So, you know, don't l- let your ideas speak for themselves. They don't need the pretty gussied up stuff of amazing artist commissions, which let's not, let's not be wrong though. For a second, we, we buy print books to make a statement in our home. Sometimes we oh, get yeah. special. Art, edition art cover- sells. Yeah. yeah. Art sells. 100%. There's no, there's no doubt about that, <laughs> but especially starting out, just do it. Just get an idea out there. Let people play the game because that also gives you avenues for playtesting for people's input and criticisms and gives you an ability to learn faster. The faster you fail, the faster you learn, right? So if you're worried about success, you never put anything out there. You're never learning. You're never applying it to the real world. And thus, you have no idea what sort of product you have in your hands until you put, until you put it out there. So I think that's I think that's a really great tip, Spencer, for sure. Yeah, awesome. Well, everyone, we've come to the end of our talk wow. here today. Yeah, I know. What, where am I at? An hour or so of of conversation. That's great. I love that. That's a lot. That's a lot to work with, Spencer. Where you know it'll be in the show notes. But where can people find you? Give me your shameless mm. plugs. Hit the people with it. You got to get people to know who you are. Yeah. So it's going to be uh, Gila RPGs everywhere. So that's G-I-L-A RPGs. That's me on Twitter. That's Gila RPGs on Itch. And it's GilaRPGs.com for my my own website, which is where I sell my, my physical stuff. So like mm. you can get all my digital stuff off of Itch. But if you want the books and the zines, because like I said earlier, I'm a sucker for being able to hold my things in my hand, like the actual game in my hand. All that stuff lives on my website. Great. Um, and then I think, go I think ahead. that's everywhere. I'm just I'm just trying to. Oh, yeah. And I have a YouTube. Yes. I yeah. YouTube. <laughs> I that's what I was going to say. Which is not Gila RPG, which is my old handle from when I first made a screen name as a little boy. <laughs> uh, I'm the Gila boy. The Gila boy. I've, I've literally had that handle since AOL first came to my home and we had five or 56K internet. Like, that's been my handle for everything. So that's why I'm Gila RPGs, is because I was the Gila boy. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> I love that so much. There's so much play in that. The child always lives within you, people. Sometimes it's just sleeping. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm I'm the whole, just a real quick thing. The only reason I have that name is because my dad encouraged me to come up with a unique name. Because, you know, young Spencer was like, I want to be Spider-Man. And, you know, you type in Spider-Man. It's like you're, well, Spider-Man's taken. So you could be Spider-Man 16352. And you're like, well, that's not a good name. My dad was like, think of something 
that nobody else is going to have. And we had recently learned about Gila monsters in school. So I was like, that's a cool, like, animal. What if I was the Gila boy instead? And that's where it came from. So my dad, thank, thank God, encouraged me to come up with a unique name. So I'm not Spider-Man 15623. I'm the Gila boy. I... The the image of little baby Spencer discovering Gila monsters and making that his superhero name is amazing. That's me. That's my origin story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Spencer, I thank you so much for being here today. Everyone at home, I hope you learned something today. And uh, we will see you next time here on Draw Your Dice. Say bye to the people, Spencer. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. It was a pleasure. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Spencer and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Spencer or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.